so let's move on to um, someone who, in many respects, um, has had a very similar career trajectory or had a very similar career, career trajectory because he's passed away now. John Martin, mm. who you could probably say there was a certain point in the history, in history where Roy Harper and John Martin were pretty much in the same place. The late 60s when they were playing... Uh, Les Cousins, the club in, in yeah. Soho, they, they were both kind of these folky troubadours who had some extra kind of elements they were bringing into their music, whether it was jazz in the case of John Martin mm. um, or Roy Harper had more of the sort of psychedelia thing going on. But they certainly, careers certainly diversified, didn't they? But but John Martin's album from this year, One World, is a masterpiece, isn't it? It's an absolute masterpiece. Well, this I think we're getting to the point of the albums that you know I would consider amongst yeah. my favourite of all time Me at this too. stage, and and One World is definitely there. I, yeah, there's a similar trajectory in the sense that they both emerge from the British, the small British folk clubs. Or I think Harper was slightly before Martin. Yeah, a couple of years, yeah, um, a little bit older maybe. And the other thing that's interesting is that both of them very subtly were quite innovative and imaginative in their use of say guitar effects and so on both of them used really echoplex echoplex echo on acoustic guitar yeah but you're right that the big difference to a certain extent is that harper i think felt more comfortable with the psychedelic underground and the progressive underground to come whereas martin you can hear drawing from soul and jazz music to a mm. certain extent and and even kind of traditional love ballads you know there's almost mm. kind of classic 40s jazz ballads there's something in his work this is a great album because i suppose it's it's transitional in that it's still a very organic album but he's experimenting with quite vibrant jazz funk in the way almost of Miles Davis on the corner there are a couple of tracks that seem like vocal versions of of Miles Davis on the corner a couple of his most exquisite tender ballads um Danny Thompson is still with him at this stage so it goes from electric funk outs to very beautiful ballads to experiments with echoplex volume pedals and drum machines which are quite unusual for singer-songwriters at that time and i suppose the title track one world and of course you know the small hours, piece, the small, small hours. It, it, yeah small hours for me that's that's the precedent for for spirit of eden talk talk but it's interesting you mentioned on the corner miles davis i i always hear in a silent way as being the big influence okay. on, on this record in fact there are tracks on the previous album sunday's child that i would say something like root love off sunday's child is more on the corner to me mm -hmm. than the tracks on this. this is a very luminous kind of be the, the sound of the roads, the production, the echo. But I can see what you mean also. Big Muff is on this record, isn't yeah. it? But the songs that I come away with, at least I remember most in my mind, Couldn't Love You More. Mm. Uh, so simple. Just It's just acoustic guitar and, and voice. And in many respects, it's the kind of material you've been doing for years before this. But somehow it's invested with a little bit more on this record. Um, a little bit more soul a little bit more feel, a little bit more of someone that's lived through something. Um, he's no longer the young man. He's more, I mean, how old was he here? Like 30, maybe? He was, wasn't old mm. at all. But he sounds suddenly grizzled, reflective. 
Was he going through his divorce at this time? Oh, that was more the, I think the that next was more record, the wasn't following it? record. But this yeah. must be the beginning of of feeling that. And then a track like Small House, which in its conception is so simple and so stripped back. This to me is is like what Miles did with Zavanel's theme on mm. In a Silent Way. Taking out, in a sense, all of the meat just to leave the skeleton of the music. And the genius of, of I think they, the story I heard is that they recorded it somewhere where there was a big lake. Yeah. And they put a pair of speakers on one side of the lake and they played the track through these speakers and they, they put the microphones on the other side of the lake. So they captured this space. Yeah. And these birds. Well, you can hear the birds. You can hear the birds, yeah. And you can hear just the little ripples of water as the birds. And they recorded this at dawn or something. And Mm. it's just this sense of space and the sense of sound in air, um, the sound of the guitar in air. And is this the beginning of the John Martin? It's very easy to caricature in a way. It's the, (laughs) the John Martin where he's not even trying to enunciate the words. Yeah. Or had he been had he been doing this before? He's kind of always had a little bit of that. But he certainly had a little bit of it, but this is more pronounced. It's very slurred. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's an amorphous quality. I think where it comes back, you know, you're right, in a silent way, or Sunra Languidity, or the first Weather Report album, mm. have that similar amorphousness. There's a kind of wonderfully airy atmosphere to this, but what also makes it interesting is that for a singer-songwriter album, it shifts from song to song. Every song has a different soundscape. Mm. Sweet little mystery, great pop song. Mm. And but Small Hours for me is the, is the is the moment on this record, the eight-minute track with the Stevie Winwood Moog. So yes, it's it's almost like it's like a painting. It's mm. like a painter that's just putting the tiniest of brush strokes on the canvas and saying that's all it needs which mm. again get your drinks ready folks <laughs> is a very mark hollis thing isn't it that that seems to me what i think of when i think of spirit of eden and laughing well and stuff. i think it's significant isn't it that yeah. phil brown was the engineer was he oh i didn't know that the john martin ah interesting and the talk talk absolutely yeah so he knew what he was talking about when it came to brush strokes musical brush strokes yeah there's th- there's that that sense that it's almost like um it's almost like a demo it's almost like it's incomplete mm. somehow you can barely understand what he's saying he's it sounds like he's not even on mic he's off mic he's singing these words and he's like almost off mic yeah if i remember rightly it also the track starts mid-flow doesn't it the, the mm. tape sort of judders yes. in yeah, as yeah. if the as if the performance has been happening even before the tape started yeah. rolling and the tape just starts rolling and it sounds like they're in the middle of something and i love that it's almost like capturing lightning in a bottle capturing that moment mm. this has been going on before we've started yeah. the tapes and it's going to carry on after we stop the tapes and he was great live during that period as well he did a lot of gigs with Acoustic guitar through Echoplex with drum mm. machine. It's such a, an interesting sound and one that to a certain extent was explored by Juruti Column and Ben Watt in different ways in the 80s, really. I mean, obviously, Juruti was slightly earlier. Um, and I do like Winwood's contribution. That that Moog side is so, so sublime. And yeah. actually, I, I really like Steve Winwood's album of this. It's probably the only... Steve well, let's talk about that because that's the next one on the list. Steve Winwood's... I'm guessing it's his debut solo it's record. It's his debut, yes. Yeah. But it's probably the only 
solo work of his I like. In some ways, it's a companion piece to um, John Barleycorn in that it's six quite long pieces and there's a very organic sound and he's just on great form. The, the only problem perhaps with the album is that there's nothing spectacularly memorable. It is, it's an album as an experience mm. to an extent. It's six quite long tracks with Winwood in great voice, lovely organic keyboard sounds and grooves, and he's pretty much doing, you know, most of it as well. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know this record, but what the way you're describing him is the way I feel about some of the later Traffic records. Um, yes. That they're, they're, it's a wonderful sound, but there's nothing terrible. The pop sensibility doesn't seem to be there. There's nothing terribly memorable about them. Um, but it's a very nice place to visit while you're listening to it. Yeah, I mean, Ark of a Diver is undoubtedly um, in some ways better arranged and more memorable, but I just much prefer this album as an experience to lose okay. myself I in. I need to listen to it. In the way that I do Late Traffic and, of course, you know, John Barleycorn, which I think is a... It's a marvellous album. Well, that, that is a very memorable record, yeah. So just to conclude on, on this uh, this category singer, sorry, Kevin Coyne's Beautiful Extremes, which was a, a collection of outtakes from the mid-70s. Kevin Coyne, we've talked about also on this show before. Neil Young's American Stars and Bars, not commonly considered to be one of Neil Young's best records of the 70s, but it does have, obviously, Like a Hurricane on mm-hmm. it, which has become such a sort of standard um, for Neil Young I, I really like the record I really well I think Will to Love is great as well Will to Love is great I mean Neil Young didn't make a bad record in, in the 70s uh, basically now here's an interesting one um, you've put this on the list Tim I don't know this record obviously I'm very familiar with some of the songs he wrote as recorded by other people but Jacques Brel uh, <laughs> Brel you say you've made a point to say, say that this was his final album so I'm assuming he passed away this yeah, year this or soon was after. the album that he wrote as he was dying of cancer. And it has, for us, it's significant, probably more in the Momus version of it. It's got See a Friend in Tears. Oh, wow. I love Momus's um, version of that. And the Brell version, it is equally heartbreaking. Okay. It's, it's the identical uh, melody. I mean, yeah, I just think he's, you know, to a certain extent, for an artist who produced so many timeless classics, he's sort of forgotten in a way. His own albums, his own music isn't listened to that frequently, it seems. And is that because his voice is quite a difficult thing to enjoy? I think it's probably because of the language more than his uh, voice, yeah. really. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably true. I should have thought of that. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to um well you know one let's let's move on to some meat here quite literally north american chart busting sophisticates yeah now what do you mean by that tim well again it's something that is the antithesis of punk that while you've got that clash album you've got the brutal sex pistols album you have these enormous american hits which are just Full of beautiful production, every sound, every detail, you know, the bass notes, John McVie on Rumours, the chord voicings on Asia. These albums sound amazing. They're beautifully constructed and they are just the opposite. You know, they're this wonderful, wonderfully painted surface. 
Yeah, I mean, you don't get much bigger than Rumours, do you? No. Uh, one of the biggest selling records of all time. But also on this list, another record that it's hard to think of anything, many records that are bigger, Bat Out of Hell, Meatloaf. Yeah. Perhaps not as beautifully produced as... as um, There's a Todd Rundgren production. A Todd Rundgren production, produced, yeah. yeah. Bat Out of Hell is really interesting because in some ways it mines Bruce Springsteen and it exaggerates a certain operatic element because there is a melodramatic operatic and opera of the streets in Springsteen and this takes it to the nth level and it's quite funny as well you know there are some there are some lyrics. funny lines yeah some very misogynistic and sexist <laughs> lines as well. but true, uh, you yes. know but but also I think what's interesting about them is that there's a there's a there's definitely a, the tradition of musicals here I mean some of these yes, songs are constructed yes. Rocky like, Horror Show I guess. yeah very very much and of course me was in the original movie yeah. adaptation of Rocky Horror Show but the the title track for example uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. These are almost like little mini, the little mini short stories. Yeah. And musically, they they go through several different quote unquote scenes as well to kind of accentuate that sort of music musical aspect to them. But phenomenally successful. I think it's one of the most successful, biggest selling records of all time, isn't it? Still to it this is, day. Yeah. I have to. I don't particularly like the record. I mean, I've I've I heard it at the time. I've occasionally listened to it over the the intervening years. Because it is such a, it's, it is so, mm. it is part of the canon of, of, you know, 70s rock music. Well, I think as well, uh, you know, Meatloaf was a great performer and was very likeable in interview. And Jim Steinman was always very bright and very engaging in interview. So I think they were quite unique characters. And I guess if you're working with Todd Rundgren to a certain extent, you have to have a certain level of wit and sophistication. So mm. I think that they were very unfairly done down because, you know, Meatloaf in a way was as much an actor as he was a singer hmm. um, and was very good at it. And I think that, you know, there's kind of, they're unfairly dismissed as being dumb when I think they're far from dumb. Oh, I don't think it's dumb. I don't think it's dumb at all. It's very hammy. Yeah. No, I don't mean ham as in the ham. I mean, Hammy in the sense that it's very... Like a bat out of hell! Yeah, he could have done that, actually. He could do a... No, it's very Hammy in the sense it's very dramatic, very over... And I think that's the bit I don't like. I never like musicals. But when I listen to it, I'm like, you know what? This, I can see, I can hear how this would have really stood out at the time as something really fresh, really different. So let's talk about rumours, Tim. So specifically about rumours, because this is a phenomenon, this record. Mm. I have to be honest and say I've never quite understood why it has been as massive as it's been. Because it is... Is it the best-selling album of all time? It, it must be up there in the top five. It's got to be up there in the top five, and it's one of the only albums. I think Dark Side of the Moon possibly is there as well, where it's just continually been in the charts since it's, it's been insane. released. It's insane. I mean, it is uh, insane that people are still discovering it this week, as and, it will appear And young in the kids, apparently, I mean, a very good friend of mine, Brian, who runs a record store in Stevenage, Revolution Records, he said he can't keep copies of Rumours in stock long enough. And it's kids coming in to buy it as much as old geezers like me. Mm. And it's still appealing. And I have to say, I've never quite understood quite... Listen, I think it's a brilliant record. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Although personally, I'd say t I'd take Tusk. You're saying it's a Pacific Ocean Blue, aren't you? No, I'm not. And of course, Lindsay McVie was going out with Dennis Wilson, I think, during... Who's, Lind who's Lindsay, Lindsay McVie? McVie. Who's Lindsay, Lindsay McVie? McVie? Lindsay McVie. What a schoolboy error. That's terrible. <laughs> Edit it out. 
Oh, my God. We can't edit that in. I've got to leave that in. <laughs> Christine McVie. Lindsay McVie. Anyway, um, I personally would take Tusk over Rumours, and I suspect you probably would be the same. But I can see why Rumours would have been the more, you know, mainstream, the bigger mainstream success, because it hasn't got the the angles and the curveballs that Tusk has. It's a very slick, very smooth descendant of Laurel Canyon, singer-songwriter, sensibility another record on this list here Joni Mitchell's Don Juan's Reckless Daughter which interestingly was seen as a bit of a creative misfire and a commercial Mm. uh, failure for Joni what Fleetwood Mac are doing on Rumours isn't that different to what she was doing on Court and Spark no really is it I mean that is to me that's the precedent or perhaps the previous Fleetwood Mac but why Rumours why this record suddenly becomes the biggest record in history I don't know it's got to be why t- this you know, timing to a degree I mean I, I really like Fleetwood Mac through the years in the sense that again like the Bee Gees they're one of these bands that completely transform themselves yeah. and in the case of Fleetwood Mac unrecognisably transform themselves the Peter Green era is fascinating the Bob Welsh era yeah, love it. is fascinating and the very first album with Lindsay Buckingham Stevie Nicks is great mm. and is only a couple of degrees different from this. I mean, that did do phenomenally well too, it but, did do but well. not on the scale of this. But then so did the world. I think yeah. the thing is that it's always seen that they were actually doing quite badly, but the Green albums were successes. And actually the Bob Welsh albums were getting in the top 40 in the States. It wasn't like this was a wasted band. These, right. They were having some degree of success with tours. You know, there's even, wasn't there an imitation Fleetwood Mac Around the same time, there's a. I think a, I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah, like there was an imitation Deep Purple as well. You know, right. these bands were so successful, they were spawning um, imitations. Um, it's difficult. I think it's. I think it's a really good album. It's a great sounding album. It's even quite adventurous. You know, when you're talking about you know the chain um, for this Laurel Canyon singer songwriter album, it does try a few different things. The rhythm section is really good. I mean, one of the things that's really underrated is the Fleetwood Mac. You know, themselves, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie. They're a great rhythm section, and they're great to me mm. because they're so appropriate. They yes. work to the song, and and. Every note, every detail is right for the song and they've got a great sound. Mm. And as Tusk proves, when the song demands it, they're good musicians it's, as well. It's the Ringo Nick Mason thing, isn't it? Is that you yeah. would never say they're they're you know technically they're they're not the most incredible drummers, but they always played exactly what they needed to play and what the song demanded and it wasn't always the obvious thing either. No. There's a great video if you can see on Instagram of this guy. Basically, he's talking about Nick Mason's drumming on many of the classic Floyd tracks. And he's saying, basically, this is what most drummers would have done. Mm. And he plays and you say, oh, yeah, that's what, you know, if you heard that piece of music, that's what most drummers would do. This is what Nick Mason actually did. Yeah. And you see or you hear how important Nick Mason's approach to the drums on those songs was for defining how they yeah. sound. And it's something you would, it would never occur to you unless you had it kind of demonstrated to you in that way. This is what most drummers would do. This is the, the yeah. standard thing to do presented with a song like Money or Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Or this is what a drummer would do, a proper quote unquote trained mm. drummer. Would, this is what Nick Mason did. Fucking genius. Mm. And I think you're right. And it's the same with, with Mick Fleetwood and John McMahon. And I think it? it's, it's, 
on rumours in abundance, really, that as much as it is this smooth, beautifully produced, mainstream post-Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter album, it's quite imaginative. There are still surprises. There's a lovely organic sound. And of course, you know, I suppose the psychodrama surrounding the album is part of the reason for its enduring success as well. Would that really have mattered to most people buying rumours in 1977? They wouldn't I mean, have been aware of it I, anyway. I was aware of it in 77, but I was aware yeah, of it. Yeah, but you're I, a music I, nerd, Tim. You're a music nerd. We're talking about the kind of people who couldn't tell you the name of any member of, of Fleetwood. When they, 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 they call someone Lindsay McVie. Something like someone that. that would call them Lindsay yeah. McVie. Someone's ignorant. Roger Gilmore. That. No, but what I mean, you know what I mean? Most 99% of the people buying rumours in 1970 yeah. wouldn't have had a clue who Lindsay Buckingham were. Or Lindsay McVie, for that matter. You know what I think Fleetwood Mac have also got that I think Floyd have and Massive Attack have? For a band that was so big, there's a mystique. And I remember that when I first heard them, and it was 77, and it was rumours, it was a disco. I was on holiday in Devon, and the DJ was playing rumours. And he was playing Hotel California and rumours... This was the cutting edge of Devon wow. disco. Cutting edge, and, and I went over and I was kind of intrigued. And I remember being with with both covers, but certainly with the ELO was rooms. still a bit too racy for Devon at that time. It was time. a little too, too racy. Racy, yeah. racy were obviously racy, too, racy too racy for racy for, yeah. for Devon. But the cover, there was something quite enigmatic. There was a mystique. Again, certainly there are a number of Fleetwood Mac covers that have the same level of atmosphere and mystery that you get with Hypnosis's artwork, mm. with Peter Savile's artwork for Factory, Vaughan Oliver's work for 4AD. Mm. I think they had that as well as the mainstream. There was a really nice sense of design. So the artwork, the look of them, there was something quite compelling and otherworldly as well as being rooted and accessible in Fleetwood Mac. There was also kind of maturity with Fleetwood Mac, bizarrely, given that they, you know, they were quite chaotic in their personal lives. There was certainly a sense of them having lived quite different, sophisticated adult lives, certainly for me as a 13-year-old observing Fleetwood Mac. It's certainly fascinating. I mean, it's a fascinating soap opera, the whole Fleetwood Mac story. Um, let's talk about an album I mentioned a moment ago, the Joni album from this year, because this is an album, as I mentioned, that was seen as a bit of a commercial misfire mm. for Joni Mitchell. I love it. It's the, the combination of the sort of world music, mm -hmm. pieces like The Tenth Planet, which is just percussion piece. And then the 16-minute-long orchestral piano ballad. For me, I tell you what the best the best comparison I have for this record is Elton John's album from the previous year, Blue Moves, mm -hmm. which again was a double album which was seen as a bit of a commercial misfire for him. And the double album has allowed her to be more indulgent mm -hmm. in a way that I personally love, you know. I think I would have, if I'd, if I'd been a Joni fan at the time, I would have been probably bored if she'd just made Hajira part two or... Yeah. Court and Spark, part three or whatever. And she comes out with this record, which isn't that at all. Um, and as I say, the sidelong piece, P Paprika Plains, which is kind of the centerpiece of the record, uh, of which the, the 10 minutes in the middle is instrumental. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a very brave and strange move for her to make at this point in her career, isn't it? But probably an essential one as well. Yeah, and very brave given the era, although obviously she would not be surrounded necessarily by the cultural and musical currents of of the UK that we were. It's certainly one of my favourites. I mean, it's it's a 
great run of albums and my favourite Journey albums are probably Hissing of Summer Lawns and Hijira, but this is really close. And Hissing of Summer Lawns is very eclectic and also involves... Um, African rhythms, electronic experiments. That's true, yeah. So it's been, there has been precedent in this. In I that think career. that, weirdly, his year is the odd one out, isn't it? That Hissing of Summer Lawns is all over the place. Again, a lot of jazz influence. So it's similarly eclectic to Don Juan. And then in the middle, you get this very consistent album in his year, which to a certain extent, in a, in a very, and I mean this in a complimentary way, it's a mono mood. It's a, mm. it's, no, no, I know what you mean, yeah. The, you know, the, the the musical palette is quite similar from one track to the next. Much. Whereas on Don Juan and Hissing of Summer Lawns, it's it's all over the from place. track to track. I think Don Juan part of its poor reputation is because a couple of the tracks, if you remember, I think they're on her live Miles of Isles album. At least one of them is. One of them is also a kind of it's coyote with different lyrics and a slightly different tempo. So there's a sense of her recycling and reusing ideas. I don't think it makes the album any weaker. Um, Paprika Plains is and was a remarkable piece of music and it's got some of her best acoustic ballads and experiments. So mm. for me, it's a really satisfying and strong album, but perhaps there's a sense that maybe some of this material is slightly recycled. Odd that it never seems to hamper animals because as we said you know half of animals maybe over half of animals was written before wish you were here but nobody ever refers to that as a recycled exhausted pink floyd album but with mitchell there was this sense of throwing everything against the wall and not having a sense of Mm. focus i think you and i both because we're both music nerds and students of music and we love you know we love to sort of step back in a way and observe the trajectory mm. of an artist's career. We do tend to be, I suppose, more sympathetic than most people would. Um, the more casual music lover, we're more sympathetic to the the folly that artists would throw into their catalogue, mm-hmm. you know, the album that is almost willfully uncommercial, that is shooting off in all sorts of directions some of which is successful and some of which isn't and i would be the first to admit that not everything on this record is successful but i love the fact that she did it anyway but as misfires go it's it's still pretty amazing yeah you know this pretty amazing um has got some of her best lyrics um and paprika plains is totally unique in her catalogue you know Mm. it has this kind of copeland sweep it's Mm. kind of american classical music meets singer-songwriter and uh, she never did it again and there are a couple of elements on it i think ricky lee jones the magazine where she almost reclaims some of the spirit Mm. of paprika plains but you don't really hear it you know for for such a unique and ambitious piece of music and in an influential artist's career it's like a dead end creatively yeah but some great Cotton Avenue, talk to me, Jericho, yeah. some great Silky Veils of Arda, beautiful, beautiful songs. I mean, again, Pistorius, his bass playing on this album. Yeah, he definitely is elevated. wonderful, as yeah. he did with Hijira. Um, and a bit like John Martin, Roy Harper, she again is using a lot of kind of echo effects on the guitar, doing some quite mm. interesting cross rhythms on guitar. I mean, she's 
I guess what I'm getting at with here, with this talking about this record, is it would have been so easy for her to do, and probably commercially, would have been massive for her to have made in 1977 Court and Spark Part Two, mm-hmm. and she could have had a record as big as Rumours potentially. Potentially, this yeah. is all. This is all sort of. I mean, Blue is her Rumours to an extent. Court and Spark is almost her. Rumors well, to an extent, Blue but... is, but Blue is is still very stripped back. Court and Spark mm. has got that smooth kind of West Coast production. Yeah. Sorry, I meant in terms of sort of in the public perception. Oh yes, of the album, yeah, but... yeah. But I think if she'd made a record with a sort of sound palette of Court and Spark and those mm-hmm. the kind of economy in terms of the, the 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 hooks and the songs and the songwriting, she'd made that record in 1977. She may have been able to write. And again, this is all you know. This is all just luck being right place, right time. Who knew that Rumours was going to be so perfectly timed yeah. in 1977? And Court and Spark maybe kept coming out three years earlier. It was still a very successful record, of course, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as successful perhaps as it might have been. Had it been released in 77? Yeah. No, I think you're right. Let's talk about some of these other records. Uh, Billy Joel's The Stranger, again, another artist that has never been particularly fashionable, mm. but... You just have to admire the sheer quality of of the songs and the songwriting and the work, don't you? Well, a bit like Elton John. He's a fantastic vocalist, fantastic piano player, instrumentalist and, and a great songwriter. Yeah. He's got all the skills. And I quite like the Billy Joel uh, origins because wasn't he in some kind of... Um, Prog rock band or something. It, it? it was more like a sort of vanilla fudge, oh, was it? Okay. heavy... Right. organ dominated rock band okay. is how he kind of made his right. debut in the industry but yeah he, he's he's a real talent and this has got some of his strongest songs and again he doesn't shy away from ambitious arrangements and mini suites um, he's also got that sort of story again that sort of blue co- blue collar storytelling thing going on hasn't he through you know sort of yes. scenes from an italian restaurant and moving on but then at the same time he can cut all that out and just write the most beautiful you know, sentimental song, like Just The Way You Are. I mean, I wrote that as another one, like Nobody Does It Better, that I bought at the time. And I realised in retrospect, one of the things that I was probably drawn to was one of Joel's intentions. Because, you know, the big influence behind Just The Way You Are. No. I'm Not In Love. And uh-huh. I'm Not In Love was one of my favourite songs of all time. And it's that gentle electric piano and those looped voices, the choral voices. Mm-hmm which you hear on Just The Way You Are. Mm. So it's slightly cheesy that I'm not... I'm Not In Love has the sense of irony and it's slightly more epic, but it's... It's a Almost equal song. to it. I think it's a great song. It's, yeah. To me, it's, it's, the, it's the same thing as How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's just so good. It's so good that it doesn't matter about the cheesiness of it. Yeah. Look, I even like Just Like A Woman. It's a great song. It's a great song also, yeah. She's always a woman, you mean? She's, She's always, always a woman, a woman to me. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Just like I'm, I'm, I'm going there actually on the Bob Dylan. Lindsay I'm McVie. <laughs> Lindsay McVie. Just, just like, like a woman. A woman by so Bob Joel. So many errors on this, blimey. So a few other records on this list. Uh, let's let's try and move through these. Uh, Jackson Brown's Running on Empty. I know nothing about this record. That was one of his big breakthroughs. Had huge. God, hit. you sound bored with it already. <laughs> you sound, I said Jackson Brown's running. Yeah, it's one of his albums. Well, Jackson Brown is one of his so yeah. Well, you remember Stay, the big hit. I no, I don't know anything about Jackson um, Brown except didn't he go out with Nico at one point? 
Yes, he did. Else. No, you're right. Yeah. He did go out with Nico. So did John Cooper. Didn't Clark, he write some songs on Chelsea? He wrote some songs on the brilliant Chelsea Girls. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that record too, but that's not 1977, um, that's 1967. Jackson Brown's one of those artists, I suppose, that I've always felt I should like because he's clearly gifted. He's got the sound in the era I like. It's just passed me by. I've listened to his should albums. I tell you, should I tell you who else? Sorry to interrupt. Should I tell you who else is like that for me? James Taylor. Ja- exactly. Same for me. I think I should like him. Great Both songwriter. of them went out with Joni Mitchell. And Both of them went out with Joni Maybe that's the thing. Maybe, maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's why we don't like him. Because we're jealous because they both went out with Joni. But then David Crosby also went with Joni and Graham Nash and we love the Cros. They're brilliant. And the Nash. But we don't like Jackson. I don't dislike it, but I mean, everything I've ever heard Jackson Brown is just, yeah. I mean, it's... I mean, Fire and Rain, I like Jackson. But you know, yeah, there's, there's nothing in their music I can personally get a grip on or lose myself in. Is it just a little bit, too, I mean, certainly I feel this with James Taylor. It's a little bit too middle of the road for me. I always feel this with the Eagles as well. It's like for me, the Eagles are the band that took Neil Young's Harvest, mm-hmm. whereas Neil headed for the ditch. The Eagles kind of took that. And it's just a little bit too slick and and there's not enough for me to grab onto. I totally understand, although with the Eagles, there's slightly more because I think Don Henley had quite a characterful voice and they did a couple of Boys of Summer is a great single. Boys of Summer is a brilliant single. Yeah. But I think as well there's a kind of bitterness and an epic quality to say Hotel California. I'd be quite happy if I never hear Hotel California again as long as I live. Okay. I just want to put that out there. I'm not saying it's bad, but it goes into the same category for me as Freebird. And I would say Don't Fear the Reaper, except I still like Don't Fear the Reaper when I hear it. It goes in the same category as, as Freebird for me as, yes, it's brilliant. Yes, it's epic. Yes, it's classic rock at its best. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it ever again. Thank you very much. Okay. No, I, I like a few Eagles pieces and I also quite like the fact that... I did, don't want to hear Smoke on the Water ever again either. They did a piece called The Disco Strangler. I'd prefer to hear that. In yeah, okay. So, you know. I don't want to hear Smoke on the Water ever again. Yeah. I don't want to hear Hotel California ever again. Not because they're bad. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They're just too ubiquitous for me. I cannot hear Hotel California ever again. Sorry. But when would you have been exposed to it? You hear it in every single restaurant you go to in America. Okay. Any bar you go and you'll hear Hotel California within about 20 minutes. Oh, well, I remember being in America for a prolonged period and hearing Fly Like an Eagle in supermarkets a lot. Yeah. Um... No. So, and another <laughs> another band that kind of fall into this, although you really like them, and you've yeah. mentioned them about 47 times already um, in these episodes on 1977. In yeah, fact, you seem to shoehorn them in at every available opportunity. What, Mark Holliston talks about. Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. Steely Dan. Explain to me the appeal of Steely Dan, Tim. Well, one of the appeals, and apparently the kids love the Dan at the moment, do they? There's a Danaissance going on. <laughs> Danaissance. Fucking hell. It's happening. Okay. The kids I love don't them. dislike them. Don't get me wrong. I don't dislike them. Yeah. I've got a couple of their albums. I've got a couple of those. They're quite nice. They're very clever. Jazzy. Yeah. A bit jazzy. I like Babylon Sisters. I love that song. Babylon, Babylon Sisters is that's, amazing. That's the only song I can get really excited about with Stevie okay. Dan. Um, but there are some, to some people, they are like a religion. Explain to me, Tim. Asia is their most popular album, isn't it? Or is their most highly rated It album? is the most highly rated and 
arguably their commercial peak as well. My favourite albums are Asia and Gaucho, which right. are the most studio-oriented, especially Gaucho, where they even have that drum machine right. built for the album. And I think they're great records. Gaucho, I think Roxy Music's Avalon owes a lot to Gaucho right. no, as I well in that. terms of that, yeah. its... Lushness. And... Lushness and precision and yeah. space. Yeah. Uh, Gaucho is an album apart in many ways because although it has the complicated jazz chord voicings, there's a lot of space. And I really liked yeah. uh, the title track of The Royal Scam. Um, there's some great earlier pieces, but Asia to me is where it comes together. We were talking about in 77 how a lot of, you know, out of the blue being an example where suddenly perhaps it hits at the right time. And I think Asia is one of those albums for Steely Dan where they've sort of eliminated any of the rough edges that existed beforehand and any of the naivety. And of course, the tales of the making of the album are legendary with the number of guitar solos mm, and instrumentalists yeah. that they yeah. used to get the sound they wanted. <laughs> and I think that one of the reasons for the popularity of the band is partly that they are quite gruff, scruffy New Yorkers making this pristine yacht rock. There's a kind of, in this case, the image works for them because it's such a non-image mm. that is almost antithetical to the music itself, to the beautiful, pristine music. You have these ragged New York beatniks. And the one thing I've always found quite curious about Steely Dan is that they loved beat poetry and beat literature and they love jazz music and although you can hear jazz harmonies in their music and you hear how they've listened to certain key blue note or miles albums their music is as far from the raw spirit of beat and jazz as you can get right it's very so, finely chiseled and yeah it's not it's not spontaneous at all not is it? remotely it's so the opposite it's really interesting yeah. how their raison d'etre their core influences what they worship they miss on every level mm. but they create their own unique mm. smooth vocabulary and asia you know the title track which is always seen as their kind of jazz fusion masterpiece with a brilliant steve gadd drum track I, I, I know the song yeah i mean it is amazing yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. um there's a certain similarity to joni mitchell you know when joni mitchell delved into jazz voicings on Hissing of Summer Lawns, mm. you know, the title track, for example. I think it's that. I think there's a level of sophistication, but there's also a cynicism undercutting the clean surfaces of the music. So they're a band of contradictions, you know, mm. is, is one of the only ways I can explain some of the appeal, perhaps. Mm. I mean, I, I definitely admire it. I don't want to give you the idea I don't like it. When I listen to the records, I definitely admire it. Because it is very clever. In, in, in some ways, I almost seem it almost like the equivalent of 10cc. Yeah. Very clever, but a little bit arch and a little bit detached from what they're doing, which mm -hmm. kind of, as you say, kind of works for it in a way. But there's a, the, the level of sonic excellence is just through the ceiling. I mean, it's mm. just sound sonically phenomenal i've just never personally been able to connect as deeply as some people do with them. i mean i have i have a few of the records um and i enjoy them when i listen to them but, but they're not records i reach for very I often i think i always preferred 10cc and still do and partly it's because 10cc like the beatles and as you explained with the yellow as well 
every song was a different sonic world. Every song was a very different story. And every song in certain cases could have been by a different band. Although there was an overall 10cc or Beatles sound, you take an average album by them, whether it's Sgt. Pepper's or How Dare You, these could have been songs by 10 different mm. bands in some ways. Whereas Steely Dan have got a much more uniform sound they don't really deviate they might sing in character mm. and have short stories tennessee c enact it they almost become mm. audio plays mm. okay okay great so um just a couple of other entries on this list and then maybe we should wrap up this third episode so we've also got this year santana's moonflower which was a sort of two-thirds live third new material crosby stills nash uh csn came out this year grateful dead's terrapin station i love terrapin station okay do you want to talk a little bit about that to wrap well terrapin station i suppose is um one of the albums where they do sort of become almost a progressive rock band although there's disco on this as well i think it's all this funk funk i, I don't know the record so i can't um but yeah terrapin station the second side is a 16, 17 minute epic with orchestra. It's their Paprika Plains. Really interesting. And I really like the album before this, Blues for Allah as yeah, well. Oh. Two of my favourite oh, okay. Grateful Dead No, I love albums. Blues for Allah. Yeah. And this, again, it's a Grateful Dead album apart. And God knows, you know, again, like with Paprika Plains for Joni, why they're making a 17 minute multi-sectioned epic with orchestra. That's got some of their their best music. They're an interesting band because ultimately they were a kind of, you know, and I, I don't say this as a criticism. They were essentially a barroom blues band mm. who had absorbed all of these other things to create this really fascinating hybrid. You know, in some ways the albums are really just just sort of punctuation points in what was. Uh, a career being a live act and this the whole jam band mentality was really at the core of what they did but yeah they made some fascinating records along the way i don't know this particular record but i'm a big fan of blues for alice so there's mm -hmm. a kind of hole in my knowledge i should go and check that out yeah yeah great okay tim so we've still got I've, we're going to get through the rest in part four i can tell you that we're okay. getting close to the final straight one more episode should should tie things up nicely so Please join us on episode four for 1977 as we finally attempt to put a lid on this fascinating, inspiring year for music. For now, goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye bye. <laughs>